and then we'll hand over to Scott and the team, and he'll lead us in praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in you we have this hope that the world can offer. There's, there's a confidence in knowing that while I don't understand everything that's happening, I rarely understand everything that's happening, and yet I know that you do. And so, Lord, Lord, we thank you for that hope and that joy and that peace that comes from knowing you and walking with you. And yet, Lord, we confess that it's hard to always lay hold of that feeling. It can be difficult to grasp hold fully of that hope that is in us because there's so much other stuff going on that it doesn't always make its way to the surface. And the things that we know in our head don't really get realized in our hearts. And so, Lord, tonight as we stand and as we sing and as we worship, Lord, we pray that the words would just leap off the, the, the screen and into our hearts, Lord, that they would take on significance, they'd take on meaning in a way that perhaps they hadn't done before. And, Lord, we would leave this place with that joy and that peace and that hope and that confidence manifesting itself at the surface of our lives. And so, Lord, we really just don't want another church service. We, we don't want just going through the routine of uh, the same old, same old. Lord, we believe you want to speak to us. We believe you want to be here speaking to us and moving among us. And so, Lord, I pray that that would happen. Lord, that that would be real. Lord, that it wouldn't be focused on anything other than, wow, I, I was at church and I actually met with God. Lord, that's the reality that we want for our lives. That's the reality that we want for the next hour. So, Lord, I pray that that would be so. And even begin now as we stand and as we sing, we pray this in your name. Amen. Awesome. Okay. Uh, as a society, as people generally, we are, we are a culture that loves to put people on a pedestal. We love to kind of put people up as, as the goat, the greatest of all time. We love to talk about how great people are, how wonderful they are. But what we love even more than that is knocking people off those pedestals that we've put them on. And it can be very difficult. Every sports star, every movie star, every music star, we elevate them and then we extort them. And then we crush them as we move on to the next person. Um, and, you know... Even if you go through, uh, say, just take the music scene, for example, it's nothing new. It, it's not something that's just a, a new thing, this kind of obsession with culture. If you want to go from BTS in, in the K-pop world, um, of course, yes, I know who BTS are. I had to Google them, but I know now who they are. Uh, or Beyonce and, and Ed Sheeran. But you go back, you go back to the era where music was at its prime, the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears, that, that's, it was, it was dark times, wasn't it? Dark times. 
But you go back even further. You go back and then you've got Michael Jackson. You go back, Queen, George Michael. Back further, Abba, Elton John. Go back further, Beatles, Elvis. But you look at, at the... You look at the, the kind of fanfare around Elvis and the Beatles back in the 60s, obsession with celebrities is not a new thing. In fact, ever since we've been able to put people on TV, we've loved putting people on pedestals. Now, people will hang off their every word, which is why then they sell us perfume. It's why they sell us politicians. It's why they sell us lifestyles and brands, and they'll often put their name on it, and we'll go, oh, well, if they put their name on it, well, then, oh, if I buy this perfume, yes, I, my wife will think I'm David Beckham. <laughs> okay, <laughs> there you go. See, as we, as we get into this, as we think about celebrity, I want to make something quite clear. Celebrity status is not a bad thing. And I don't want to come across, when we're talking about celebrity and we're talking about our, um, our obsession with looking to people and putting people on pedestals, in and of itself, celebrity is not a bad thing. It can vary how it manifests. And so I, I wouldn't say that being a celebrity is a, is a bad thing. Uh, there are famous authors famous uh, preachers, famous news reporters. Now, that's a very different kind of fame than being a rock star. But it is still fame. Being highly respected in your field, uh, having people travel to see you perform or to speak or to, to... It's a reflection on your excellence and your influence, both of which I would argue are gifts from God. The ability to excel in your field is something that God has gifted you to do. To be able to influence others with that gift of excellence is another gift from God. And so the real question tonight, uh, or one of the questions tonight is, what do we do with the celebrity culture that's around us? What do we do with this obsession with the people on the pedestals? Well, I think, first of all, something that we need to be conscious of is the impact that they have on us. Celebrities can make us very quick to be judgmental. They can make us quick to kind of jump to conclusions and criticize and, and all the rest of it. Uh, it's obvious to us that nobody's perfect. And yet there's something that happens whenever they are in the limelight that we expect them to be perfect. We expect them to say the right thing, do the right thing all the time. And in such situations, it's, it's inevitable that those individuals are going to be held to standards that are simply unachievable. Um, do you remember a reference that this morning in John 8, there was the woman who was caught in adultery. I, I referenced her earlier on, but she, they were brought to Jesus, and his response to the men who wanted to stone her was, look, you who's without sin cast the first stone. But in society, we love casting stones. We love taking something and throwing it and knocking someone down. In our society, we can't believe that they wore that to the event. 
We can't believe that they're dating so-and-so. And it's all right to know how many weeks pregnant they are. Or are they just fat? We will draw circles around their cellulite. We will point out to the world that they've got bags under their eyes. And we will gasp in horror and disgust that they would spend money in a shop. And yet when our favorite star then makes a mistake or says something which is out of sync with what we think or what we believe, we will lambast them. We will go on the internet and they will get messages telling them to go and kill themselves, to go and die, to go and lose weight, to go get a grip, and all the rest of it. And we do this instead of actually thinking, okay, they are just human. Perhaps they are struggling with temptation. They're struggling with sin. They're being handed so much. Perhaps we would not do as well as they have. In James 4, he asks a really potent question. Verse 12, he says, look, there's only one who judges perfectly, so who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge? Someone who's got influence, someone who excels. Christians are quick to even abandon their, the Christian celebrities. Yes, there are Christian celebrities. Famous Christians are often subject to the same rules. Uh, some of you will remember Rob Bell. Uh, back uh, probably seven or eight years ago now. Uh, He was named one of the Times 100 most influential men in America in 2011. He was largely influential in church areas when he founded and pastored his Mars Hill Church in 2005. There were maybe 11,000 people come through the doors of that church on a weekly basis. 11,000. His books, his videos, his resources were used around the world. And a lot of them were quite good. And then he wrote a book. A book called Love Wins, where he openly questioned and doubted the reality of hell and whether God would actually send people there. And so Christians then responded not only by rejecting his book, but rejecting all of his work, all of his material, all of his sermons, and his integrity as a person. And among evangelicals, there were other celebrity pastors who joined in in saying that he had no place in the church. Now, what Rob Bell taught in that book is completely unacceptable. But here's my question. How do you teach someone? How do you restore someone? if you cut them out of your life? How do you get alongside someone and and try to understand where they're coming from when you'd rather judge them and hold it over them and define them by that one mistake? You think of the one mistake that you've made in your life. You, You probably didn't do it intentionally. But imagine then if every single person that you know judged you on the basis of that one mistake. That's not fair. And it makes it very hard to forgive whenever we've already written them off. It is a frail Christianity that defines itself by the people whose books you read and sermons you listen to. That's what happened in Corinth, wasn't it? Oh, I I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Cephas. No, that's not, it's not about the, 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 the pastor that you have or the podcasts that you listen to. It's about Christ. We follow Christ, and it's a fickle expression of our faith. And one that's not based on Scripture, 
but one that's based in humans who have limitations, who change, who are going to fall short and let us down sometimes. And yet Christian celebrity culture creates in and out groups based on personalities rather than character, rather than basing things on the unchanging word of God. Celebrities make us quick to judge, which is a dangerous thing, I think, for Christians. The other thing I would say is we neglect the extraordinary in the ordinary. Fame and fortune aside, people who are on pedestals are still just people. And it's easy to forget this whenever our society elevates them. How many times do you see, you know, I'm, I'm queuing the pay from a petrol in the petrol station, you see the celebrity mags kind of at the till. And I'm convinced that every single cover is a picture of either um, someone from a reality TV show. But generally speaking, they're either coming into Starbucks or out of Starbucks with a coffee. And it's like, is it really that interesting that they've got themselves a coffee? Is that really how, how boring? But because it's a celebrity, oh, they're going to the... They're getting their uh, spice pumpkin latte. <gasps> yep, that's what happens. They're on the school run or they're in their car. And yet how many ordinary everyday people around us are doing some remarkable things, either for charity or in their church or in the name of Jesus every single day. But it goes unnoticed because, well, they're not a celebrity. And when we focus so much of the achievements of those who are in the spotlight, or even just the daily routines of people who are in the spotlight, we neglect the efforts of our neighbors who serve without recognition of their peers. And it's often here where we can find a better inspiration of how to live a Christ-like life. In many ways, Christ exemplified the extraordinary in the midst of the ordinary. Born in Bethlehem, growing up in Nazareth, he was, surrounded by, he was surrounded by people who weren't spectacular in any way. Certainly not compared to the celebrities of our culture. And yet that's probably what makes him so extraordinary. Don't confuse the number of eyes on a person as being the same thing as worth and value of what someone is doing. And number three, fix your eyes on Christ, not people. If we look to celebrities to teach us how to react in conditions, how to communicate with others on what to value, we will be in trouble. Uh, we put Jesus' teachings then on the sidelines, and including Christians here uh, with celebrity Christians. If you're more interested to hear what Beth Murray or Francis Chan or John Piper or John MacArthur or whoever else, Matt Chan, whoever it happens to be that you really like and who you listen to, if you're more interested in what they have to say than what God has to say in his actual Bible that he has given us, there's a problem there. There's something out of sync with where we're really focused on and where we attribute, where we attribute worth and value. Having said that, let's turn to God's word and see what it will have to say. We're going to Matthew 20. No. Um, okay. um, I'd originally thought about going to Matthew 19, 
and looking at the close of the chapter that we studied this morning. We looked at the start of Matthew 19 this morning, uh, but I thought about going to the end about the rich young ruler. This guy had it all. He had fame. He was well-known. He had influence. He had excellence, and he wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus turned around and said, no, look, you have to get rid of it all if you want to follow me. Uh, And the man went away because he was very rich. And I thought that could have been a really good commentary on God's attitude towards status and materialism and celebrity. And yet, as I was reading the passage and studying the whole context, I realized that um, the the break between chapter 19 and 20 is, is at a really bad place. Remember, whenever they were writing the Bible, the verse numbers and the chapter numbers were added in later on, just so it was easy for us to find different parts of the Bible. They were added in later on. They're not divine. And, and, and this is a, in a particularly bad place because it interrupts Jesus middle, mid, um, kind of in the middle of a teaching point. They all kind of lead together. Um, and so he, he's speaking to the disciples in response to the rich young ruler. And at the end of chapter um, 19, that's on the screen there, he says, but, the first, but many who are first will be last and the, f- and the first will last. And then at the, in chapter 20, uh, in, six, at the, in verse 16, again, it's at the bottom of the screen, he says, therefore, therefore, because of all this, the last will be first and the first last. So in the middle here, in these verses, there's a parable. And it speaks then about really where we put people on, on our priorities, the people that we put on pedestals, why, why is this person first? Why is this person better? Why is this person so influential compared to other people? And so let's have a look at that. Now, this parable in between uh, is on the screen. Um, we'll not read it all. I'll just paraphrase it for you. Uh, basically, what's happening is there's a landowner who needs workers. And he agrees uh, with some people to go in and work for the entire day at a set rate. They're contract workers. And they agree a price, and they are happy with their price. Let's stress that right now. They are happy with the amount that they have agreed to work for. They're getting a good pay for a good day's work. Now, the day progresses, and uh, maybe he's kind of thinking, right, well, I could get a couple of extra workers in. And so he goes in, and he finds a couple more workers, and they go in. And I think verse 12, is it? Verse 12, yes, uh, these last worked only one hour. Okay, so there's guys come in, and they only work for, for like the closing up the shop. And yet, the landowner, in generosity, gives them the exact same amount as the contract workers who have worked there all day. And, of course, it kicks off. They're not happy. But it's a parable that is to reflect the generosity of God and the authority of God. People aren't happy, though. How come they get paid the same as us? Well, look, listen. We agreed a price at the start of the day. You're getting that amount. I'm fulfilling the contract. Why are you so upset? You're getting what we agreed. These other guys, I paid them what I wanted to pay them. I chose to be generous. Now, what's the nature of the complaint of these people? Why did the people who had worked all day complain? It wasn't because they got what was promised. They were complaining against and solely against the big-heartedness, the generosity of the landowner. They got the same as us, but I had to work harder for it. It doesn't matter what I agreed. That's not fair. 
Now, the most direct interpretation of this parable is that all believers, no matter how long you've been saved, if you've been saved when you were five or six or seven, and you spend a lifetime of serving God and being involved in church, and you work hard and serve hard, and you've got the ups and the downs, your reward in heaven is going to be exactly the same as those who get saved on their deathbed. In that, you get heaven. You get to be with Christ in heaven. And that's wonderful. The thief on the cross who died beside Jesus got the exact same reward. He got eternal life. As Timothy did, who served in the church for years. Now, of course, Scripture also teaches that there are different rewards in heaven for different services. There are crowns that we receive. But the ultimate reward of eternal life is given to all equally on the basis of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that Jesus is highlighting here is how dangerous it is to receive something, to be given something, and then complain that other people are getting the same as us or, and having to work less for it. God, give me what I deserve. I think I deserve more than what I'm getting. Now, of course, you realize that that's a very dangerous thing to ask God for. God, give me what I deserve. Because it's all a gift of grace. You don't want to tell God, give me what I deserve. And this is the big issue in the sense of entitlement that comes in our society. We, we get dissatisfied with the good things that God has given us. And we look at other people who've got a bigger car and a bigger house and, and a bigger lifestyle and a bigger bank balance. And we say, hold on, this isn't fair. I'm working 50 hours, 60 hours, 70 hours a week. This guy gets to sing in the microphone and he just gets all the money. How, how come? God, this isn't fair. To say, Lord, give me what you think I deserve, or give me what I deserve is a very dangerous prayer. How should we pray? Lord, give me what you think is right. And like the landowner in the parable behind me, he'll say, I'll pay you what is right. I'll pay you what is right. Great. Lord, you are God. You know what is right for me. And so I'm going to say, I'm not going to say, look, give me what I deserve, you know, because we know what we deserve, right? If we're being honest with you, when you read the Bible long enough, you figure out what we deserve. We're going to get to heaven in the end of it. And on top of that, we're going to be rewarded with crowns. Let's not talk to God about what we deserve. It's all about his grace. It's all about what Jesus has done. That's the promise God has made for us. And he has promised to provide for our needs, not our greeds, but our needs. And so what we say is, Lord, you know what? I'm leaving it up to you. You are the provider, and so you know what I need. A great passage in Scripture is Proverbs 30, where the author writes, Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. That's number one. Here's number two. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that you have allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and defame the name of the Lord. That's a great balance. 
That's a great balance. Lord, you know what I need. I'm leaving that up to you. Don't give me riches that makes me arrogant and cocky. Don't leave me in poverty where I'm tempted to be dishonest, to try and make ends meet. Now, I wonder how many times you've ever prayed that, Lord, give me riches. I've had poverty for so long. Give me some, of, some riches now. But rather to say, Lord, look, listen, I don't need either extreme. But just, Lord, give me enough to live. Give me enough to be comfortable. Give me enough to bless others. That I don't have to steal. I don't have to be proud. And I'm leaving up to you because you know it's right. It takes a whole lot of pride. It takes a whole lot of self out of it. So I hope you're, you're getting the picture here of what Jesus is trying to communicate in this parable. These workers are eyeing the, the landowner. They're giving him the evil eye. You ever been around people who, uh, you know, will say sweet things, you know, but they have that look, you know, the hairy eyeball where it kind of just comes on? No. Oh. And it's like, you know, they're giving him the, these eyes. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening. They're, they're saying, okay, yes, you, you, we've agreed the price and all, and all the rest of it. But, but they're, 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 they're really looking at him and, and, and the landowner and the parable can see the evil intent in the end. He says, why are you angry with me? I see the angry look in your eye, verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last for many are called for your chosen. Bottom line principle, God is good. God is gracious. God is generous. And, and, and how we order things in our priority list, what we think we deserve, what we think we're entitled to, and that sense of entitlement, God's not interested. God's not interested. He says, look, I decide who I will be gracious to. I will decide who I will be generous to. Don't dictate to me who gets what. And God. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. I love that refrain. We should say it more often to each other. God is good. God is gracious and he will reward us. I think that's partly aimed at Peter when you go back to the last chapter and the rich young ruler, he leaves the scene in the previous chapter and Peter kind of boasts, <laughs> Jesus, that guy, well, what's he like? He, he didn't leave it all behind. Not like us, huh, Jesus? Not like us, because we, we left everything. We left our fishing boats, and we left all the fish, and we left it all, and we followed you. Not like that guy. He, he's not as good as us, because we left it all. He's kind of going, sucking up. It's not a particularly nice image. And he's getting a wee bit complacent. And Jesus says, look, Peter, just hold on. You think you deserve more because you've given up so much to follow me? You think you deserve more because you're holier? That you're more worthy? You think you deserve a better version of spiritual life? Don't get caught up in the world's way of ranking things. It is too error prone and you don't see the whole picture. And I think this passage is important. How often have you heard a Christian say, well, I mean, I could have been famous, but I went to church instead. I could have married so-and-so, you know, but uh, I settled for all fish face here because, well, I'm a Christian and I had to marry another Christian. Or, you know, I could have been, I could have been rich, but I, I tithed instead. I could have been rich, but, but, you know, I had to, you know, I sold the business because it was just that, you know. 
I sacrificed so much to follow Jesus. I am a great Christian. What Jesus is saying here is calm your jets. That's not how God sees things. You didn't sacrifice anything. Jesus sacrificed everything. All you did was trade up. All you did was trade up. So be careful about how you think about yourself and in terms of what you deserve and what you're entitled to compared to what maybe other people are entitled to and the things that they have going on. How we look at celebrities, how we look at people who are successful, how we look at rich people, how we look at poor people, how we look at people around about the church and how we judge and how we assume that, well, if they're successful and rich, clearly they're not spiritual like me because I'm so spiritual. That's why I'm broke. It's wrong thinking. And that's what Jesus is saying here. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Bible says, we, believers, all of us, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things that have been done in our bodies, whether good or bad, according to what we have done, good or bad, we're going to be rewarded by God for the things that we do as we serve the Lord. We're going to stand at the judgment seat, the bema seat of Christ. Uh, Now, a bema seat it was something that every Greek city and town had. It was like a raised platform, like the one that I'm on right now. Uh, but it would have been outside the town hall. It would have been in the city, the sort of the town square. And it would have been a place where judges would declare rulings on prisoners. It would have been a place where governors would declare new laws, new taxes, things like that there. But it was also a place of reward, not just punishment, not just legalities. It was a place where athletes were received uh, their, uh, their laurels, uh, you, know, the, um, you know, the wee leaf things that they wore in their head. It's where they got their um, prizes for the marathon, for the Olympics. It's where they were honored. So in one sense, it could be a place of shame and regret. It can also be a place of joy and reward. It really depends on what you've done whenever you get there. And so, either way, it symbolized a place of getting what you deserved. Either things good or things bad. You got what you deserved at the Bema Seat. So Paul harnesses that image to the Greek Corinthians, and he says that we're all going to stand at a spiritual Bema Seat. Are you going to be the athlete rewarded for a race well run, or are you going to be the guy standing ashamed? blaming other people for his failures. I want to clear something up. I want to clear something up. I want to be very clear. I think there are some people who think that we are going to be in heaven and we are going to stand before God to be judged. And he's going to be, we have this picture of he's going to play a video of our lives with all our mistakes and all all the things that we've done wrong. And it's going to kind of be projected and everyone's going to see it. And we're going to be, oh no, I can't believe that this is up for grabs. Some people think like that. We are not going to stand before God and the great white throne judgment that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. That is not our destiny. That's for unbelievers only. That's for people who are not saved. Romans 8 starts by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. 
no white throne for us. Jesus Christ's blood pays for your sins that you will never have to stand before God to answer for your sins. Jesus said the same thing in John 5. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, has everlasting life and will not come into judgment but passes from death into life. So you don't stand before the great white throne judgment to be judged for your sins because Christ has dealt with your sins. But as believers, you and I will stand at the bema. The reward seat where Jesus Christ will give you reward or withhold rewards based upon what you did on earth with your life. Now, I hope I'm clearing something up and you're thinking, okay, so you're not saved by works, not saved by works, but rather we're saved by faith, grace through faith to be technical. You trust him, he graciously and freely gives you salvation. You don't earn it. But now that you are saved, you are saved in order that you can do good works. Works comes after salvation, not before salvation. So I hope you understand the difference. It says in Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The Bible over and over and over and over brings us up that we are going to be judged by Christ for what we do not for salvation, but for our rewards. Jesus said in Revelation, one of the seven churches, he says, behold, I am coming and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. And Jesus, then he also said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth cannot corrupt and thieves cannot break in and steal. That perspective is important in this life. Because we are in a culture that is so focused on instant gratification. How many followers do you have on Facebook or YouTube or Instagram or whatever it happens to be? The lifestyle that you can have, the car you can have, the holidays you can have, the gadgets you can have, the lifestyle that you can project. That's what people are so focused on. And yet it goes against pretty much everything that Jesus tried to teach us. And it's important because then what would Jesus say then to a celebrity-obsessed culture like ours? What would he say to someone who has fame or has excelled in some area and whose name is highly regarded? Well, let me give you three bullet points. Number one, I think what is important is not if you're well-known, but why you're well-known. You can't ignore the fact that some people are well-known, even in Christian circles. You go back even to Jesus and into the Old Testament, there were people who flocked to hear the most gifted teachers, even Jesus himself. He was famous. So the question to a celebrity or a wannabe celebrity or to an individual who is obsessed with it, what do you want to be known for? What do you want to be known for in this life? Remember, we are saved for good works. Too many so-called celebrities are famous because they're taken off their clothes or are stupid or some sort of exaggerated parody of themselves. That's not worthy of our attention. Rather, Christian, excel. Thrive. 
pursue excellence. Every church ministry in this building should strive for excellence. And just pause. As a Christian, what are you pursuing? What are you pursuing? What, 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 as you go into this next week, what are you going to strive for? What do you want to achieve? What do you want to be known for this week? Celebrity culture is self-centered. Look at my house. Look at my money. Look at my empire. Look at my influence. But it only lasts if they can stay balanced on the pedestal. And yet the bar keeps getting higher and higher to get noticed, or lower, if depending on what way you want to look at it. To be more outrageous, to be more daring, to be more laughable, to be more asinine. First Timothy 6, and I love this. First Timothy 6, starting in verse 9, says, But those who desire to be rich <laughs> fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That sounds like everyone who goes on to Love Island, I think, you know, or anyone who goes on to one of these reality TV shows pursuing these things because they just want to get rich quick because they don't want to work on a real job. They just want to get rich. They want to be famous. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Which leads us to the next thing. Because what I would say is, if you have a platform, I would say you're duty-bound, obligated by God to use that platform. Being famous isn't a bad thing. I guess what you use your celebrity for is the big question. I think of some of the Ulster rugby team down through the years who are believers, who are saved. It's brilliant. Every week you'll, you'll find some, one of them giving a testimony or something in a church around the province. And the meetings are full. Why? Because they are famous and people are interested in sports stars and want to hear what they have to say. Ephesians 4, 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If you have a platform, if you've got people who listen to you, whether they're the children or grandchildren in your house or the people that you work alongside, whoever it happens to be, if you speak and they listen, say something that's going to build them up. I said at the start, excellence and influence are gifts from God. They are opportunities that open up to you when people are willing to listen to you. You therefore have responsibility to speak well from a platform. It's a matter of stewardship. In the same way, there's a duty for a parent to be careful about the example that they set their children and, and the role model they become for their children. I think, what is it? Casting Crowns have a song, that's oh, an old one now, it's called Slow Fate. And it says, be careful little feet where you go for the little feet behind you are sure to fall, or something like that. As I look at my life, I have been influenced by many people. 
my parents, teachers that I liked, teachers that I did not like. Influence goes both ways. Friends, family, just, and then just as I've been influenced by others, inevitably what I do and say will influence others, whether it's my family, my friends, people in the church. There's an African proverb that says, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't spent the night with a mosquito. You see, the mosquito makes a difference in an annoying way. But the principle is the same. One person can stop a great injustice. One person can be a voice for truth. One person's kindness can save a life. Each person matters. History is in many ways the story of influence. In reality, we all influence one another in all different kinds of ways. From what we have from lunch, for what films we watch, to what to more important matters of when we talk about truth and ethics and spiritual things. What we do as individuals, as a community, nation, it affects others. So how do we use our influence for good? If we are saved to do good works, if we are to use our words to build people up, what do we do with the platform that we've been given? God has chosen us, the church, to be a blessing to all people. We are blessed to be a blessing. Not the old saying. Save to shine as a light in the darkness. The final thing, just as we close, I would say to a celebrity or celebrity culture is apart from why you're known is more important than if you're known, apart from the responsibilities of platform, I would say you'll be crushed under the weight of your own desires unless you're anchored in Christ. I don't care if celebrity translates to being a rock star or being a mayor in local politics. Whether being well-known means being chairman of the board or in the PTA or a YouTube sensation, whatever it is, however you imagine that to be, if you feel that the only way to have meaning and purpose in your life is anchored in what other people think of you and how big a, a, a crowd you can draw and how many people pay attention to you, that will crush you and you will be malnourished most of your life. Yet we are made in the image of God. We are made to reflect the image of God. So when you try to make it about someone who isn't God, it's never going to be quite right. It's never going to really quite fit or satisfy. You'll catch little highs along the way, yes, but it will not last. You ever notice how many famous people drink so heavily? Take drugs so often? Have a high suicide rate? Yes, financial positions help them to indulge themselves and to pay for it, but how hard must it be to achieve all the things that you set out to achieve and yet still feel empty at the end of it? Uh, if I can have a number one album, okay, I've got it, and yet why am I not satisfied? Oh, I want to fill the arena and, 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 and make my millions and make another million. I'll not be quiet until I make another million. Make tens of millions. That would be a crushing feeling. But when I anchor myself in Christ, I find that he gives life and life to the fullest. In worship, we worship God as sovereign. He makes each of us different 
and he makes each of us different for a reason. It's intentional. Everyone brings something different to the table. We all need to bring something different to the table. The church is a rich and diverse body and so anchored in Christ. Level, it levels the playing field with people around me. It stops competition forming. Well, I'm the best at this, and they're the best at this, but I'm the best at this, and they can do this, and if we can get someone in from this other church, we, we could be the best church at doing this. It's like, no, 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 no. Listen, we're just all in Christ. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and you're just sinners saved by grace. We, we're, we're in this together. You're gifted to do your job. I'm gifted to do my job. Someone else is gifted to do their job. We're not competing. We're working together, and it stops pettiness. And it stops nastiness, but it then also allows for excellence because we're all responding to the excellence and the majesty of God, not what Joe Bloggs is doing beside us. Now, if I forget that, I become self-righteous. I start to put myself on a pedestal. I start being critical of others, judgmental. I put myself on that pedestal and play God, and it will poison relationships. But perhaps it could all be summed up by Jesus in one sentence. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then all the other things that we desire, all the other things that we need, they'll come. But it has to be Christ first. I wonder, I wonder for anyone here, if you're being honest, was it Christ first this week? Was Christ genuinely first and foremost at the front of your mind? in how you did your work, in how you had your conversations, in how you socialized, in how you, you relaxed, or whatever it happened to be, was Christ first? Or was, I don't know, for, for the younger ones, uh, you know, if getting that other person to, to like you back, if, is that, was that the most important thing that you achieved this week? Was it building your profile a wee bit, building your popularity a wee bit? Getting the boss to like you a wee bit more so that you're more likely to get the promotion next time around? What was really first? Here are the people that were putting on pedestals. Or is Christ the one who's elevated in our life? Is Christ the one that we aspire to be like more than anyone else? going to ask the musicians to come up again and um, we're going to sing one more song uh, and then I'll come and close uh, in prayer Father I pray that we would have a bigger vision of who you are Lord the scripture says I must decrease and you must increase Lord, maybe if my life was less crammed full of my selfish interests and selfish desires and thoughts of my popularity or thoughts of and concerns of what other people were thinking, if I emptied myself of those things, there maybe would be more room for you. And so, Lord, I, I pray for this battle because we're all prone to want to know what celebrities are saying or you know particular ones that maybe interest us and in and of itself fame is no bad thing to excel to have influence 
Lord, we strive for these things in our own church. Lord, we want to have a reputation that is good, it's pleasing. But Lord, help us to keep things in perspective. Lord, help us to realize that it's not just even that you're a little bit better than everything else. But Lord, that there's no comparison. No comparison to your glory, to your majesty, to your beauty, to your love. And we cheapen and we lose out when we choose to focus somewhere else. So Lord, I pray, help us. Help us to focus on and to put your kingdom first, to seek your kingdom first. And I pray this in your name. Amen.